Support for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. It's coming up on 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have a very special guest, and it is my honor to have uh, William Yellowrobe Jr., who is a uh, nationally known Native playwright. Uh, And uh, William, thank you for for being here. You're welcome. Um, we've got a lot to, lot to cover this hour. Yes. I know you're up to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you, um, well actually, before we even start, I'm going to read this bio so that people get a better idea of uh, who, who you are. Um, and it's, the, uh, it's from the um, Amerinda, mm-hmm. okay? And that means, uh, American Indian Artist Association. Artist Association. Okay. Here's the bio. William S. Yellowrobe Jr. is an Assiniboine playwright, director, poet, actor, writer, and educator from the Fort Peck Indian Reservation located in northeastern Montana. He is presently an adjunct faculty member in the English department at the University of Maine. Uh, He's also a Lieber professor there and a faculty affiliate of the Creative Writing Department at the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. He and Dr. Margot Lukens, University of Maine, have completed the book Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers and Other Untold Stories, a collection of Bill's full-length plays. His other book, Where the Pavement Ends, a collection of his one-act plays, was published in 2001. He is a member of the Penumbra Theater Company of St. Paul, Minnesota, Ensemble Studio Theater in New York, and a board board of advisors for Red Eagle Soaring Theater Company, a native youth theater company of Seattle, Washington. Bill is a recipient of the first book award for drama, the first playwright to receive a Princess Grace Foundation Theater Fellowship, a Jerome Fellowship from the Minneapolis Playwright Center, and a New England Foundation Award for Excellence. And this past year, uh, he received an award, the Smithsonian uh, Native Achievers Award uh, at, the, at the, the Smithsonian Museum in, in D.C. So, Bill, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Don. It's great being here. Um, you've been up in the uh, playwright world, uh, theater world, actually, for many years. And... Uh, First, how, how many years? Right now, I think as a professional, probably close to 25. I first began my career uh, back in 1987 when I wrote a book for a musical. That was my p- first professional job. And that was uh, 1987. And it was a uh, production for a musical called Harvest by the Montana Repertory Theater Company, which was a, a professional equity theater company housed by the uh, University of Montana Theater Department, Montana Repertory Theater. And since that time, I haven't really gone back, but I started writing plays when I was in sixth grade. Yeah, so tell us about that experience. What, what started <laughs> you on that? Well, I was one of those troubled kids where, one, I really didn't like school. In fact, when I was in second grade, I was picked up for truancy by the uh, by a sheriff, a deputy sheriff from the Roosevelt County uh, Deputy's Office and taken back to class when I was in second grade. But I had a really unfortunate experience, an early lesson in racism when I was in fourth grade. Uh, Excuse me, I had a uh, teacher where the assignment of the day was to spell all all 50 states on the chalkboard in alphabetical order, and I misspelled Tennessee. 
So the instructor at the time grabbed me by the hair and spun me around in front of the class and said, is that all you Indians do is sit in your teepees and do beadwork? And that's because I misspelled Tennessee. So I really had trouble staying in school because at that time we didn't know how badly mistreated we were in some cases. And then in sixth grade, it got to a point where I was skipping school. I was back into my truancy. And then one day I thought I would be very clever. I would go over to my grandmother's house and hide out <laughs> because my grandmother would never ask me, <laughs> why, are you, why aren't you in school? But uh, she would. But uh, I, I was the grandson, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, I came into <clears throat> her house and... Usually she would sit there by her table and she would have her cup of tea and her smoke. And uh, this time I was caught off guard because my teacher was sitting there (laughs) with her, my sixth grade teacher. And she took me back to school and she said, well, would you like to try something different? And I said, yes. And I had tried to audition for the uh, 4th, 5th, 6th grade plays that we would produce and was denied. And so she said, why don't you write a play? And I wrote a play. In fact, I wrote two plays that were performed for the entire sixth grade. Oh. And when I received my first uh, professional drama or theater, theatrical drama from the Native American Theater Ensemble out of Los Angeles, it was a real professional theater company, Native theater company. When I was preparing to leave for Los Angeles, I received this envelope in the mail, and it was copies. They had, uh, my sixth grade teacher had mailed me two copies of the plays. So I was really amazed. It was a thick envelope, but she had somehow managed to save on, save those two copies and, and sent them to me. So I was very surprised. And I was also kind of amazed that she held on to him. Her name is Miss Dorothy Grow, and unfortunately we lost her. But again, I always share that story for those who are in teaching as well, that you could inspire children. You could really inspire children. And this is one of those cases where someone who was not of my culture, but it actually gave me the opportunity to make the attempt to fail. And I didn't, fortunately for me, but at least I was given the chance. Yeah, I know a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, teachers... They don't really, they don't, well, they don't give that time that's mm-hmm. needed to the students. And, uh, and you mentioned that you had tried out for plays before and, and, uh, and failed to make it. Mm-hmm. So I guess my, my question about that mm-hmm. is if you tried out for plays and didn't make it, and why, why would she ask you to write a play? Just well, she was in charge of that, that process. The, the plays that were being produced were handled by the music teacher. See, it was a different category. It's like sometimes you had, uh, we were a larger uh, school unit, so we actually had a physical ed teacher, a music teacher. That's when we had money to do things like art, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, very viable programs, important programs that are needed. And so with Miss Dorothy, Dorothy Grove, she taught sixth grade, and we had two sixth grade classes. But again, it was hard because this is a time when I think people forget that I am a child of the 60s. I was born in 1960. So a lot of the privileges and rights you have now, we didn't have back then. So we didn't have this sense of entitlement that a lot of young people have today because we come from a generation where we were denied these rights and privileges. And so to see these younger people... Uh, complain about the simplest things, I always have to remind them that, you know, there were, there's an older generation that made sacrifices for you to have this because we've never had it. And that's the reality of, of our country. Yeah. And, uh, and, and in theater, it's a, it's a, it's a great medium to uh, send some of those messages you want to send. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what always amazed me was that uh, of all the different forms of literature I've been published, I've been published as a poet, short story writer, and I've actually began working on a science fiction novel about three years ago. (laughs) Really? Yeah, (laughs) and I haven't had a chance to go back and finish it. But what amazes me, theater, of all the literary forms of writing, had a unique approach in that, one, you really do need a community in order for it to flourish. It starts with one individual writing the play, 
But in order for the play to be produced, uh, to be officially seek its final goal, which is production, you need a community. And what amazed me was that from a Native perspective, coming from the family, I was very honored to have parents. My mother was Mina Rose Forrest Yellowrope, and my father was William Stanley Yellowrope Sr. And having them as parents, I always had a sense of community. They gave me a strong sense of community. Uh, my mother was what is known as an elder, but she never called herself an elder. My father was considered an elder, but he never considered himself an elder. And they were both fluent in their languages and knew of the older traditions because my father was of that generation where he was just the first generation to be on the reservation. And my mother was probably the second generation ever to be on the Indian reservation. Uh, but it was because of them and the upbringing they gave me, I've been very honored and always had that sense of community. And theater to me was a way of, if you will, politically, of having a form, a sense of resistance, of colonization. It was a form of decolonizing. And the other thing, too, was that it involves a community, but it also is a, is a means of enriching and nurturing a community. And unlike films, like in the 70s and 80s, Native people really believed that films would provide a different venue for us. But see, in order to do films, you have to have a tremendous amount of money. Uh, there's an old saying by Jack Ward <laughs> Warner that I always quote, which is, uh, he said, if you want to send a message, go to Western Union. But if you want to make movies, come to Hollywood, because that's what we do. And then Spike Lee, when he started doing movies, and he came out with a very powerful statement saying, you have to remember, it's, you don't own the house. You have to have money when you come here. And you have to have millions of dollars, whereas Native communities don't have it. But it's interesting that you can get a group of people together, raise $25, pay for the, po the cost of publishing and printing posters, flyers, and scripts, and donate by the community pieces for costume set and do a production. But it's your play. And it's your voice. So for me, theater became a means of a resistance without bloodshed. Because Native history here in the Americas, every time we've tried to assert our rights as human beings, we've been basically battered about one form or another, whether it be overtly or subvertly. We've always taken a beating. And theater was the means of, of allowing that expression to happen without any bloodshed. So for me, theater had a power that poetry and fiction did not have. You know, it kind of reminds me growing up, and I, I, I was born a few years before the 60s. Uh, growing up, you know, we had uh, uh, just about every year we had a play, or, you know, on St. Patty's Day we had, we had a play, and mm. we, <laughs> <laughs> we, we did a lot of things that were not acceptable uh, that now, anyway, mm -hmm. we couldn't do now. Yeah. Uh, but there was a lot of talent in our community, acting and singing and uh, even uh, uh, playing instruments, yeah. and they and they they did all of that back then, and uh, you know that now that you mention it being sort of like a form of uh, anti-colonial uh, repression or whatever, I think you're right. I think yeah. that that it gave them a a special voice. Yeah, because uh, my belief is this: in working with various Native communities with young people, I've always been amazed. Our kids are so multi-talented. They are so fantastic. If all they need is a chance to really share that. And a lot of times, they're really diamonds in the rough. I was working in Sisseton Wapaton at the Sisseton Wapaton Community College about three years ago. And there were three students I ran across, Jessica Red Thunder, uh, uh, El, Alfred Seaboy, and Timothy Laughter. And they were phenomenal young actors. But they don't have the proper schooling. And I'm wondering... If they were to get a degree at Yale, would that hinder their, their talent? See, that's the other big question. Yeah. They are diamonds in the rough, but what will you polish them into under all those conventions? See, that's the danger about it. And eventually, uh, they were looking for a, uh, three actors. They were casting a film out of Minneapolis, and so I recommended the three students, and two of them got the leads wow, in this film. It'll be out in, I think, another year. It's called The Res. And it's going to be released within another year or so. But Alfred Seaboy and Jessica Red Thunder got the roles. And I knew they were good actors. 
But see, again, they're just talented kids, and they just need that, that means to express themselves. Even here, I've been amazed as to the talent of, of people I found among the Wabanaki oh, nation, you know, the Penobscot kids. There are some, uh, Nick Bears one, Molly and Dana is another. It's just a list of people that are so good, that have so much talent, and they just need the means to express themselves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I think that uh, the work that, uh, that you're doing right now at the University of Maine with uh, Native students and uh, theater and writing, I think that's hugely important. Mm-hmm. And not just to the, to the individuals that are writing, but to the communities that go and, and watch these plays and listen, and, and then to the wider community that actually mm-hmm. watches and, and, and if hopefully they'll get the message that the playwright's sending them. Yeah, because you see these movies where the hero is told they can't do it. You know, uh, you can, whether it be Rudy or even uh, where, where someone's told you can't do it, you can't do it. And these kids have been told for so many years they can't do it, and they know they can. They know they can. So when they come on, they're literally the underdog. They're the Rocky Balboa, <laughs> in a sense, an artistic Rocky Balboa. They're unpolished, but they can do the job, and they can get it done. But see, it's, it's amazing that when we lose a child, that's painful. When we lose a child to the diseases of alcoholism, uh, suicide, drug addiction, uh, that's the reason why I get torn up, because it's a great loss. It's a great loss. Yeah. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, I've overlooked theater. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) (laughs) Usually nothing gets by me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's because theater sort of, when you talk about literature, native literature, you think of poetry, fiction, novels. And what's happened is that for playwriting, it's become sort of like the bastard child, if you will. But see, uh, native playwriting is more difficult because you have to organize a community in order for the work to, to be completed to reach its fulfillment. And a play is meant to be produce, produced, not meant to be published first, but eventually it is published after it's produced, but it has to be produced first. In order to make that production happen, you have to organize the community to give it life. In other words, it's like a lot of Native ceremonies. You have to find the means to give it breath. And once you give it breath, then it takes life, but it needs that breath. And it means that individuals have to sacrifice a part of their breath in order for this to happen. When we work with uh, students here, uh, when we, uh, we do plays here, I always offer in the prayer a thank you to all the actors for giving uh, their breath to bring these pitiful words to life. Because if you look at it, they're just words on a piece of paper. But it's when they give it breath, they give it life, and it takes on a whole different meaning. Uh, those characters now come to life, and those characters are now heard, and they now share those experiences with the audience. It's a very powerful medium. But again, uh, because playwriting, I think what's happened, just like other forms of literature, you have a legacy of plays about Native people that are done by non-Native, that yeah. are very popular. I mean, when I was growing up at as a student growing up, as I was a student at the University of Montana, Missoula, Montana, one of the leading plays at the time that dealt with Indians was written by a non-native, and that was Indians by the playwright Arthur Copet. Uh, he took characters such as Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and put them on stage. And when he was confronted about the idea of exploiting native culture, he said, well, this play is not about Native people is about Vietnam. It's like, well, why aren't you writing about the Vietnamese then? Why are you using us for your expression? Yeah, exactly. And we've had we've had others uh, <coughs> define who we are mm-hmm. and and interpret our messages. Oh yeah. See, that's the other thing that's so amazing about this is that I was thinking about it earlier. Uh, we've gone through so many years of our identity being told to us what it is, handed. Our identities have been handed to us by an outside force. Even a government will establish what we're supposed to be, quote-unquote, as Indians. But when Native people take this role of, the, of asserting themselves and asserting their own identities, then we're criticized for taking that action. But yet it's our identity. We actually have to take control of who and what we are. Those days of turning to outsiders for our validation have to stop. 
we have to turn to ourselves and say, is this acceptable to us? And if, if it's not, why is it acceptable? There has to be that communication because that's the way it was. Yeah, and the other thing too, I think, is uh, and what's so great about writing a play and, and actually producing the play, have it all come together, is you do, you have to work in the community mm-hmm. with community members and in bringing community members together, you bring together people who may have some problems or issues with each other, uh, but who, for the sake of the play, yeah. for the sake of the story, yeah. uh, will bypass that and come together and actually uh, do a great performance to tell the story. And I think that, overcoming that sort of... Uh, those issues and whatever, I think that's hugely important. Yeah, because when it comes down to it, it's, it's almost like if you were to go to a service, the Native American spiritual service. Uh, I'm not referring specifically to the Native American church, but if you go to a, a ceremony, you have to be able to put your petty fears and discontent to the side in order for that rite or that service to happen because it's not about you. And see, that's what's so important about theater. I've asked cast members to leave their differences to the side in order to work. But at the same time, the flip side is that I always tell non-natives or those who are really uh, have some issues about their nativeness, I always remind them that this is not going to make you more native. (laughs) This is not going to make you more native. Just because you've worked with me, you've done this production, doesn't make you more Indian. But hopefully it'll create a dialogue for you. And also maybe you might learn something about respect. And then the most important thing that, you know, as a young generation in this narcissistic world we have, we forget how to listen. We only hear ourselves and we don't hear other things. That's, I think, a real key component of theater that happens in playwriting is that you allow people to listen, to hear themselves. And when you have that, that's real communication, and that's part of a healing process, if you will. Because I've always said theater has a component of a healing element for communities, where when I've done plays, I've always been amazed that I might have a Native member from a community come up and say, I wish we had the courage to say that, or thank you for saying that, because I've always wanted to say that. And see, to me, that kind of praise has been phenomenal, and it's, to me, it's more important than a good review. Mm. Because yeah, it's, it's within the community. Yeah. But see, again, it's that question of if we were to form a relationship with theater, it has to be a relationship and it can't be viewed as a commercial art form. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think Native communities, Native people get that. Mm-hmm. And I think we probably get it before non-Native communities get it. Right. In fact, I, I've been amazed at all the conferences I've been attending nationwide that a lot of the major theater companies are now looking at eliminating that concept of audience and now dealing with that concept of community. And it's amazing because for native theater in this country, we don't look at audience, we look at community first and foremost. And then the other thing that's amazing too, within that process, we've always been concerned about the environment. Right. So when we say we're going to do this play here, we're also looking in and taking into consideration the environment Whereas mainstream theater is just now coming to grips with that concept, sadly enough. Yeah, and I remember I did a little research on you, and I'm oh, okay. <laughs> just trying to find this little phrase that you, you're quoted as saying. Um, if I can't find it, I'll just ad lib it. But you're, you're quoted as saying uh, something about uh, the world is now coming to us. Oh, yeah. that's Well, I used to have this argument. Uh, in fact, I just recently had it in this uh, Native Lit class I taught here at the University of, of Maine. It was a student who said that basically Native people are so isolated, and I thought, that's a lie. Because if you look at it historically, the world has come to us. Look at all the countries that are here on this land. Then if you look at your American history, look at all the European crowns that's, that put foot on this land. And on the West Coast, look who came from the, you know, Russia. We had the Tsar of Russia and Alaska. 
And in the South, we had this, all the Spanish and French crowns. So in reality, the world has come here. Uh, we've never had to go out. You've never heard, I, as I think I said one time, you never heard the story of a, of a group of Mohawks in a canoe going over to France and starting a war. Or you never heard those stories, but they came here. And that whole concept of breed or mixed blood, people always say it's an Indian and white issue, and it's not. It's, we are now related to African Ameri- the African-American community, the Latino community, the Asian community. In other words, we're related to the world now. Yeah, and that's a good segue yeah. into your play. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers, which I think uh, I, uh, it may be uh, appropriate, especially this week, to talk about it, mm-hmm. uh, since this uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, mm-hmm. whatever. And, and uh, you, I'm gonna, just going to read a little bit from the news release from the uh, uh, press room of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of the American Indian in collaboration with the National Museum of African American History and Culture presents William S. Yellowrobe Jr.'s compelling drama, Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers. This play runs through April 22nd, and it gives the dates. Uh, And it says, uh, Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers reveals the historic clash of two fiercely proud yet oppressed cultures pitted against one another by westward expansion. The play depicts the homecoming of Craig Robe, Mm -hmm. uh, descended from a Native American woman and an African-American buffalo soldier, ridiculed as too black to be Native. The uh, Robe family has struggled for acceptance not only by their tribe, but by each other. Through skillfully balanced humor and pathos, this fearless, heartfelt play asks audiences to consider racial and cultural identity while maintaining a compassionate and open-minded view of the complexity of mixed-race heritage in America. So, tell me about the play. Okay. (laughs) Well, the play came from a series of events. Um, I wrote the first draft after, in in fact, it it came out of that uh, sense of loss. My first wife had died of liver cancer. And I had gone into almost like a hermit state. And when I actually started to come out of that, I wrote Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers and Res Politics at the same time. And I put Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers on the shelf for so many years simply because of the fact it was such a painful play. And a reminder of history, my own personal history, because I am part African-American. That's the reason why when I go to powwows or I went to socials and people would come up to me and say, oh, y'all, Rob, you're a full blood. You understand how we have to watch these breeds. And it's like, who are you talking to again? Excuse me. (laughs) But it was amazing to me because I was raised by my mother and my father who lived a life of full bloods of elders. And when I say full bloods, I have to remind the audience what I'm referring to of those who are lived with the community and raised with those cultures, with the culture and traditions. That's the reason why I say full blood, not in reference to blood quantum. I'm saying it in regards to culture identity because they knew who and what they were. And they were fluent in the language, et cetera, et cetera. But with uh, Craig the character Rob, he's a little bit of my life as well because there was always that whole question of how to look native. Uh, that's always been a key issue in a lot of native communi- communities, you know, to the ability to look native. We actually, on my reservation, had one guy who ran for the tribal board and because he was redhead, shaved all his body hair because he was told native people don't have body hair. Uh, he had gone to the extreme. But at the same time, it was amazing that there was a psychology of the, the oppressed. Uh, what I found out in the country traveling around was that people were more willing to accept a breed if they were part white and part native, and those who were part African hid because there was such animosity. Uh, there are some communities, you don't have it here on the East Coast, but as you go further west, that whole concept of buffalo soldiers is a very angry concept because of what happened. Uh, You had the soldiers that fought during the Civil War that were turned into units, the 10th and 11th Cavalry, that were sent out west to fight and engage Native people, and they had some of the worst uh, wars, battles, fierce battles. 
And so there was an animosity created. And it's kind of ironic, too, because the Buffalo Soldiers would be in areas, Indian Territory areas, communities, where not only were they fighting uh, Native people, but they were fighting the people that they were sent to protect. <laughs> they would actually go into towns and sometimes be shot by the very people they were trying to be to protect. So it's kind of ironic. But again, it was that whole idea that sometimes uh, in William Chance's book, Black Indians, he talks about how there was a promise with the Texas Rangers, who were predominantly black at that time, African-American and Native American, mm-hmm. that if they were successful, uh, they would be given their own state. They would have their own homeland. And that's out of William Chance's book, Black Indian. And if you look at the Texas Rangers, even though the you know, they weren't all Chuck Norris kind of guys, they were first African-Americans and then African-Americans and Native Americans. Wow. But see, that's, that reality has changed so much to be white. But with uh, the, in the grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers, it was that whole purpose of learning to love and respect yourself. I mean, that if you're a mixed blood, then accept that fact. Uh, respect it. Show it the honor that it needs to be. And that's what Craig Robe does when he comes home is that I'm not asking, as Craig says in the play to his brother Brent, I'm not asking you to be black. I'm just asking you to respect that aspect, that reality that you're black. You don't have to live black. Just respect it. And there are some times in our society that our, our identity has been taken away from us and has been dictated to us that we feel ashamed when we're not, quote, unquote, full bloods. And then that whole thing of the white being the powerful color, we still have to go through that. And people don't understand from a Native perspective, that's always been a painful process. Uh, I've written other plays where, like in, if you will, the Star Quilter from Grand... Mm. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, where the pavement ends, where uh, Mona tells the character Luann that her daughter comes back and says, uh, were we here before Columbus or did Columbus came? And Mona tells Luann, why is it it doesn't mean anything when a Native person says it, but as soon as a white person says it, it has strong meanings. And we teach our kids to do that. And unfortunately, that's tragic, that we can't validate our own expression because that's been taken away from us. All the systems that would support that expression have been taken away from us. So in Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers, you have Craig Robe who comes back and empowers his family to accept that fact and to really engage that fact that they are African-American and it's something that should be celebrated and not be ashamed and they shouldn't have to hide. But we, we forget that that's also part of our legacy too. Yeah, a lot of that stuff's internalized and we just regurgitate it right back out to, yeah. to our own families and our own communities. Yeah, because yeah. one of the things too that is also a primary element of my work is that there's a lot of thoughts that we've engaged and that we've basically become a part of and we and we've been taught these thoughts one is racism yeah one is sexism another one is this whole homophobia these are thoughts that were given to us that we now practice we don't know why but we're told by mainstream we must have them and these were never part of our lives and so the question is, why do we even want to engage this thought? I mean, it's so ridiculous. But there are times when, you know, when I was growing up, we really had no African-American community on our reservation. But yet to hear Native kids come back, well, I had a cousin who graduated high school with me, and then eventually he went into the Army, became a ranger, came back, and during the discussion just, was so foul, he was saying the N-word before. I've never heard him use this word. And I thought, wow, I grew up with this guy. He's never used this word. Why is he using it now? Because he learned it in the service. Uh-huh, yeah. He learned it in the service, and so now he's saying it freely without any thought about it, and it's like, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The uh, Now, another play, I mean, you've written, you must be going on 50 plays or more now. Yeah. Um, there's one that uh, I was wondering about uh, that you wrote. I think it was in 2003 called Stray Dog. Mm-hmm. What was that? What was that about? Again, that was about the blood quantum, but it was from... Uh, with this was that you had this whole thing of validating your expression. Uh, you had two brothers. One was running for the tribal council, 
in this case, and he looked native. And then you had another one who looked almost predominantly white, and he was going to go through a ceremony, a naming ceremony to get his name. In fact, of the blood quantum cycle, uh, there are four plays that deal with the whole issue of breeds. One, The first one is a stray dog, followed by um, grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldiers. Uh, the third being mixed blood seeds. And then the fourth being pieces of us. And this is a blood, these are uh, four cycle plays dealing with the whole issue of blood quantum and identity. But in a stray dog, it, it's this family that's predominantly white. But Alec, the son who comes back to get his naming, to get his, his name from his tribe, which would validate his expression as a tribal member, is in competition with his older brother or his younger brother who's running for the tribal board. And the younger brother winds up stealing all his giveaway items <laughs> to sell. He basically steals these items of the Pendleton blankets and the, uh, the towels, etc., and then sells them and tries to bribe people with votes. <laughs> and the <laughs> But what's interesting in this case is that the father supports the younger brother, Wallace, in his in his actions because he thinks that this is the right way this whole dehumanizing process is now the the new age in which we have to live that it's the you know the the fittest will, will win and so you know, might makes right whereas with Alec and his grandfather it's it's not really acceptable to be dehumanizing to be so uh, insincere, you will not gain what you want. And so, eventually, Wallace doesn't get what he wants. So it's kind of like you get the, the new age or the newer, the new people, the new believers or progressives uh, against the traditional. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, you actually have more of a, oh, how do I say it? It's like, it's similar to where you have the traditionalists versus the capitalists. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> You have that, that situation where you can't buy things. I mean, Wallace is really in that frame of mind where he can buy things. He can buy a seat on the tribal board. He can buy relatives and what he's taught by his grandfather and his brother, Alec, that you can't buy these things. Yeah, but he's taken those those traditional items mm-hmm. and he's getting rid of them. He's selling them. Yeah, in order to make money to exactly yeah. buy, buy bribes, buy votes. Yeah. But you see, that's again, that's whole thing of, and it set up that whole issue of governance, which people forget for Native people, our traditional governments were not established the way uh, this European structure was set up. And we forget that, that governance has a different meaning for us. Sometimes your leaders have to say no. And even though it goes against everything the people want, sometimes, yeah, they have to say no. And it's not because of the money, it's because it's the right thing to do. Absolutely, and I think we, a lot of times we lose that sight of the right thing to do. Uh, so, and, I, and again, I, I it, it, that really helps. You know, when you when you write a story, when you write a play, uh, it brings back some of those old values. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you, and oh, another one that I was looking at, and you have a huge list of plays. <laughs> yeah. But one of the other titles that caught my eye was uh, uh, the council mm-hmm. now because I'm on council so I <laughs> <laughs> what's that all about well what happened was that <clears throat> back in 1991 there was this uh, native actor his name was uh, John Kaufman and at the time he was the artistic director of the Honolulu Theater for Youth and I had met John at the Seattle Group Theater's uh, Multicultural Playwrights Festival, where we did a reading of A Stray Dog, and he played Wallace. And he had always wanted to work with me. He was a Nez Perce, originally from Idaho. <clears throat> and he said, I'd like to commission you to write a play for the Honolulu Theater for Youth. But he said, uh, we deal with the Pacific Rim, people of the Pacific Rim, and would you be able to write a play for that kind of audience, for those audiences, those communities? I said, sure. <laughs> but I wrote the play of the council, and it was going. It premiered at the, I mean, excuse me, Seattle Children's Theater. But we had lost John. He had passed before he, the play actually went up. Uh, he was struggling with AIDS, and he was a tremendous loss because he was a phenomenal theater artist. He used to do a one-man show called According to Coyote. But the council basically dealt with man's entrance into the world, 
that whole premise that uh, I think this is the big conflict we have with a lot of Christian beliefs that uh, in Christian belief, uh, man is given dominion over animals, but for a lot of native religions, uh, man is only given life by animals. If it's not for animals, man would never have survived. And there are stories where man is actually the, the bane of creator because man is created by the trickster in some stories. And in this, basically, the council was about this ruling body of animals where they have to decide now that man has entered the world, what are they going to do with him? Do they hunt him down so he doesn't cause any problems? Or do they allow him to basically flourish? And what would be the you know the results of him flourishing? So... They have a council made up of different animals from the Pacific Coast. We at Pacific Rim, we have ice traveler, we have panda bear, we have tiger, we have condor, uh, we have eagle, we have all these characters. And at the time when I was writing the play, play, I put these animal characters into the play and gave them voice. I didn't realize all the animals in the play were on the endangered species list. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this. In, fa <laughs> in fact, it was when I was working with Kent Blancett, Steve Sexton, and other members of uh, Waukegnaby Theater in Albuquerque, Roger Colty and those folks, that Kent came up to me during rehearsal one time and said, did you realize that all these animals are on the endangered species list? I said, no. He said, yeah, every one of them is on the endangered wow. species list. And then I've actually had people really enjoy the story because it's a reflection of a lot of the stories they grew up with from various tribes. Oh, yeah. Not just one tribe, but several tribes could identify with that story. So I was very honored by that fact that, you know, I tried to make it accessible to all indigenous people and it was working. Yeah. But the sad thing was is that it's really, uh, I think this is what people forget is that, yes, Native stories are charming, but there's a real harsh lesson because native, good Native storytelling will take you to that ultimate form of pathos where it's like, wow, that is so dark and deep and so sad. And it's like, yeah, that's how we are, though, because that's how our life has been. And somehow we've always come out on top. Well, we're still here. Yeah, we are. That's true. <laughs> That's true. We shall remain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of remi reminds me of uh, was a, a lady that was, uh, I always get this, you know, we're so tired of hearing your dark mm -hmm. stories. It's so depressing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to feel guilty? Mm -hmm. You know, when when is that story going to change? Mm -hmm. You know, is there anything upbeat or, or, or anything positive that mm -hmm. that you're going to get to? I think that's part of not really our problem <laughs> because what it comes down to is that the question I've always have to ask when people say this, uh, they always say, well, you know, you Indians, you always live in the past. And it's like, well, what do you do? I mean, you have a political group now that's talking about going back to the past, <laughs> That's found, they formed their images and iconography on this whole thing of the past. But for us, it's not a question of living in the past. It's that we're actually still in that process of the trauma. And it's a trauma upon trauma. Uh, it's like someone from the Holocaust that has, you know, if we were in World War II in 1945 and someone was telling the Holocaust survivor in 1946 to get over it, it's kind of really insensitive because it's like, yeah, when you've watched your entire family annihilated, they can't overcome, get over that in one night. But for Native people, it's been this consistent legacy of trauma after trauma. And we've gone from, cult, uh, from a physical genocide where we were hunted down and basically almost pushed to the point of extinction to cultural genocide where everything about us, our language our songs, our spirituality, everything was destroyed, slowly being destroyed before our eyes. But again, it's amazing to me what is so fascinating is that America, you have, and, and when I say white, I'm not generalizing all white people, but the majority of the white society don't know their history. They forsake that. Because there's a lot of things that have gone on that have... Well, they don't know the true history. Yeah, and, you know, they have to be held responsible. Malcolm X once said something that was very, very important. Uh, he was at a discussion one time, and a white student said, well, I can't be held responsible for slavery. 
And then Malcolm X said, well, you can't reap the benefits either. And see, that's what happens. Within white society, they don't want to be responsible for the crimes, but they reap the benefits. Hmm. They've reaped the benefits, not them directly, but also indirectly. They've had grandparents and great-grandparents who have benefited from the taking of Indian land and Indian culture and Indian foods. They've benefited from that. They've reaped from the benefits. Uh, you don't hear stories about how slave-owning families turned back all their money to the slaves because it was unheard of. They kept their money. They fought hard to keep their money. Yeah, but then you don't see you don't see huge landowners today here in Maine turning some of their land back to the tribes. Oh no! But you see them donating to these trusts and whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But see, that's the reality of it: is that you reap the benefits. Yeah, you reap the benefits, and let's not lie about that. But see, again, that's part of history we don't want to acknowledge because here's the thing. To carry that kind of guilt means that you can't be always on the high moral ground. It was always amazing to me that when America got into this discussion of apartheid in South Africa, they would shake their finger of shame at the South Africans and go, how dare you do this to the black Africans in South Africa? And then the white South Africans would go, well, us, look at what you've done to your indigenous people. And continue to yes. do Yes. Yeah. So who's really at fault here? Yeah. But it always amazes me within this whole theater discussion of global theater, it's amazing that white theater artists have this tendency of going for the exotic. They'll go to these other countries, and it's like, well, you're going to these other countries because they don't really know what you're like. But when you want to talk about oppression, you want to talk about colonization, look right here in your borders and you'll find it. You will find these elements right here within your own communities. You don't have to go to Palestine. You don't have to go to Cambodia. That residue is still here. Yeah. And the thing is, if they do, if they do go to um, Palestine, if they go to um, Haiti or uh, Chile, those other places then they don't have to pay attention to what's going on here. Yeah, it's a great way of not being responsible. But you see, here's the other thing that, that has to happen, I think. It's not so much, and I used to say this to students, I'm not here to make you feel guilty or to make you feel angry. What I do want you to do, and the most important thing you could do, is listen and listen to this information, and then make your own judgment. But I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I'm not here to make you feel angry, because I'm not interested in that. Because if you start feeling guilty and angry, that leads to hate. Exactly. And I don't want your hate. I would rather have you listen and think that maybe you might come up with a solution, that you might take action in being part of a solution. And that's what's missing right now. That's the reason why the ability to listen and communicate are no longer means of civility in this country. It's now an issue of how much you can scream and the outrageous slander or libel you can throw at one another is more important than actually discussing issues. We've lost the means of civility of communicating. Hmm. Do you do you think that... Uh, um, there's sort of like a, 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 a renaissance maybe happening in, in Indian country as far as writing and, and artists coming out. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel that what that's happening in Maine, mm-hmm. only because just recently we found our, 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 vo- our voices and we are starting to write things. Um, I, I don't know if it's so much a re- uh, renaissance. I think it's more of, uh, let's look at it this way. I think Maybe that's a bad word, renaissance. No, no. It's, it's part of also an interesting aspect here, too, because I think it's what's happening more than anything else is more political and economic, is that the means to do these things are now accessible to these communities. In other words, you now have accessibility to cameras, to radio, to publishing, words before we never had it. We never had the means to do it. Uh, one of the greatest uh, things that came along for a lot of young writers was Kinko's. Yeah, because really. now, yeah, now you could actually format your book on Microsoft, go to Kinko's, and then roll off copies of your book. 
In fact, there was a playwright, Jeffrey. Oh, oh, by the way, before you go on, yeah. uh, you are doing an ebook. Yes, right. Yeah, it's through uh, the works of uh, Trace DeMeyer and her ebooks collection of native writers. They've uh, published a book by uh, Muriel Tarrant, and then also by Narragansett writer John Hopkins. And so I'm doing a book on all my spam rants and raves and poetry. I think yeah. it, I, I developed this huge title, and I'm not going to go through <laughs> until I finally get it published. But uh, like, but like I say, the means for this are now available because they weren't available. Even the class I'm teaching now, uh, the English 405 at here at the University of uh, of Maine in Orno. I told students, I said, 40 years ago, this would not happen. You're being taught playwriting by an indigenous playwright. This would not have happened 40 years ago. That's pretty amazing right there, right there in itself. I mean, mean, we need to appreciate that. Yeah, because I've I've taught native lit and native drama at the University of Maine and reminded students, you know, this is the first time you're having native drama being taught by a native playwright, and this is unique because it doesn't happen every day. Right, and the other thing that I just want to... Put in here. I just want to read this. I I love to read stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a. It's called In the Trenches. Mm-hmm. A little article. You're probably yes. aware of that. It's a. It's a. Uh, it's from the American Theater Magazine, 2005. Mm. Okay. And it, it says uh, this is no mistake. We're talking about. Uh, um, let's see. Those who follow American Theater's Facebook. We talking about adding some of your Facebook stuff. Uh, and if you don't already uh, know what 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 you are waiting for, you may have noticed that one of those most lively, persistent commenters is Bill Yellowrobe, and that the uh, recurring theme of his comments is Native American theater and culture. There is no mistake, since William S. Yellowrobe Jr., who currently teaches storytelling and Native American lit as an adjunct professor at the University of Maine, is among the preeminent. Native American theater artist working today. His play, Grandchildren of Buffalo Soldiers, staged the 2005-06 season in Minneapolis Penumbra Theater Company and Trinity Rep of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, prompted no less a figure than public theater artistic director Oscar Eustace to rave, and I quote, I think William is really one of the great American playwrights. He has an extraordinary body of work created over the past 20 years, end of quote. The public also uh, recently produced a, uh, a stage reading of a newer play by William Yellowrobe Thebes in the Red Way in association with the New York-based company American Theater. So, you know, people, I don't think, appreciate the fact that they have a really prominent native playwright to teach them. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I appreciate that, and, and, I, and I thank you for, for doing that. You're welcome. No, I actually had a conversation with Darren Renko over here at the University of Maine, and I said, it's amazing that every time I come here, I'm treated just as an Indian. I'm just an Indian. But when I go into New York or Boston, people know me and know my work, and I'm celebrated. But here I still get that whole issue of, well, he's just an Indian. And mm-hmm. it's kind of frustrating, but that's the reality of it. Right. You know, and it's something that, again, it's one of those thoughts that we have to do away with. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and, I, and we need to educate ourselves. Yes. Um, and the other thing, speaking of educating ourselves, you are, uh, uh, you have a play coming up that you're helping, uh, you're advising Molly and Dana. Mm-hmm. Uh, want to tell us uh, when that's going to be? Yeah, uh, Molly and Dana has a new full-length play called A River Runs Around It. It'll be uh, January 19th and January 20th at 7 o'clock, and it's the Cyrus Theater, or Cyrus Pavilion Theater. It's located on the campus of the University of Maine in Orono, Maine. I would suggest try to get there early because parking is always a problem <laughs> in that area. It's right outside or near the Fogler, Fogler Library and the University of Maine Student Union Center. It's in that, it's a round building. It's that round brick kind of building, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and parking is always difficult and it's always a walk to it. So 
I would suggest people, if you can, come early and get a parking space and then walk to the theater space. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I, uh, I, I know, you know, when you talk about writing plays and whatever, uh, there's a whole process mm-hmm. to that. You know, you just don't sit down and write a book and then, and then walk out. Yeah. So if you could, we've got a couple more minutes to go, but if you could just maybe go through that process of what happens when you write a play, what are some of the things you got to do and think about? Well, for me, it was always a question that I always knew what the idea of the story might be, but the question was, was the believability, plausibility. And the other thing, too, is that I had to argue this point, is it my story to tell? Because from the native aesthetic, uh, it might be a great story, but it might not be my story to tell, and I have to come to grips with that. And then once I've come to grips with that, all right, it's going to be okay. Usually it was my mother and father that gave me the okay. Now it's my sister. Uh, since both my parents have passed, it's my sister and my brother who give me the okay to write. So I go ahead and do it. But it's okay to tell these stories. So then that's the first part. The second part is that it's been such a profession where I can write it and get it complete. But the question is, who's going to do it? Because it is a Native American story. And when you, you know, when I was teaching playwriting, I would produce all these student playwrights, Native kids who've written plays, and I would realize who's going to publish their work, who's going to produce their work, because we have this huge lot of Native plays by young Native students, and no one's going to produce their work because they are Native. Uh, when I was at a student at the University of Montana, I was in the acting program, they would say, uh, Bill, you're a good actor, but we have no roles to cast you in. So when I started writing plays, they would say, Bill, it's a great play, but we have no Indian actors to produce your play. So that was the other big issue is that who's going to do it. But the third part, and I think this is very interesting, was that I never had that opportunity of being that, that having that, the privilege of having that ego of thinking about success. I never had that problem of, Oh, what am I going to do with all the success? The question I had to face was, what will the community think? See, that was my big issue, was what will the community think once this goes up? And I hope I don't hurt people in a bad way. So again, it was that whole question of humbling myself. So I've never had the playwright or the actor's ego. I, I was raised as a Native person, so I always had to humble myself and ask myself, is this the good thing? And if it does hurt, then I hope it hurts in a good way. But I had to be aware of those things. Hmm. And, uh, and, and your whole purpose in writing plays was for the community, is that? Yeah, because what happened was uh, when I first started in, in high school, I would take, uh, we, were, we were required to take a Montana history course and having the instructor saying my tribe was no longer alive, that we were extinct. And here I was. And also I was amazed that our history was not getting out there. So when I started to write, it was the means for me to say that my tribe, my people are alive. Mm-hmm. And we are, I'm celebrating the fact that we are alive, that we are proud people, and that we are alive. We shall remain, you know. And so that was one of the premise was to celebrate this community. And no matter how deep or dark a lot of the problems that we have, we always find a moment of celebration because we do reach the light. No matter how dark life can get, we always find that moment where the light finds us and we can celebrate it. So it's, one, it's a way to keep tribal communities and tribal people visible. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, and so with that, unless you have uh, one, anything else you, you'd like to say before we... Yeah, uh, it's also been a pleasure working with you on your play. Now, you're not supposed to talk about my play. <laughs> <laughs> no, Donnie, I think uh, Luscabe and his kids, his children, is something that we're going to try to do in the fall. But I think your work is also very important, too, because you're taking uh, the lead in basically taking traditional stories and contemporary stories and creating an incredible reality on stage. And it's a musical, so that's really an important piece of work, especially for this territory. Because it's, it's not Little Orphan Annie. <laughs> it's not Guys and Dolls. It's a part of life, and it's a part, this is the most important thing, too. It's a part of American life. Yeah, absolutely. You and Molly and play, they're both a part of American life. And it's great that she's my great niece. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Thank you, Bill, for, for joining us. And, and thank you all for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. You've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Ralph Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my special guest, William Yellowrobe Jr., for joining us today. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. Radio News. This is Free Speech Radio News. Free Speech Radio News is the only daily half-hour progressive radio newscast in the U.S. It's owned and managed by news reporters. 